welcome to Everyday Greatness, a nice little show proudly brought to you by major sponsor ARA Group, one of Australia's greatest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness is a show hosted by a real human being, talking to some real people about real human issues that will help make you feel proud again of simply being a good solid Joe Bag of Donuts. Here's your host, Barnaby Howarth. Welcome to Everyday Greatness and thanks for listening. This is a show designed to celebrate the greatness inside everyday people. So grab a drink, kick your feet up and settle in. Before we start today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. I think honouring, I think acknowledging Indigenous Australians is far more important than just reading from a generic, impersonal script. So I'd like to honour our traditional owners from the heart. I love being Australian. So I want to honour those who came before us, those who share their country with us today, and those who follow us. Some of the things that have happened in this country in the past embarrass me as a white Australian. So I'd like to acknowledge that I feel horrible for any pain that's been caused. But I'd also like to acknowledge how beautiful Australian Aboriginal culture, your past, your place in today's society and your future are. Thank you for sharing your country with us. Before I start interviewing my first guest, I'd like to thank our episode sponsor today, Cherry Civil Engineering. Cherry Civil is a civil engineering contractor based in Sydney with a history of safety, on-time delivery, innovation and problem solving. The staff at Cherry Civil are just good people planting seeds of small goodness around the world. So I'd like to thank Cherry Civil for sponsoring this episode. Mental health challenges sound like insurmountable battles between good and evil that only superhumans can, can conquer. Sounds like you have to go on a life-changing quest through an enchanted forest and slay a fire-breathing dragon if you want to climb your metaphorical mountain and be mentally fit. The stakes in mental health challenges are incredibly high, so I'm not by any means belittling the struggle. But do we need to have a mystical X factor to survive them? Or is it enough to be a good friend and not be a dickhead? In today's society, it seems like we need to be something or do something to be proud of ourselves. But is it enough to be a good person, respectful of others, and say good day if a friend is struggling? Simply being a good, solid human being should be a source of immense pride. And if that's what you are, you should puff your chest out, be proud of yourself. But if you're sometimes a bit of a tool, it shouldn't be made to sound like an insurmountable battle between good and evil. Just be a good friend and don't be a dickhead. White line fever means different things for different people. For some people, it means fun, friends, or fitness. For others, it means winning at all costs, aggression, and ruthlessness. For my next guest, though, Edward Ferguson, the CEO of the Northern Suburbs Football Association, 
White line fever means opportunity. Ed and the NSFA created the Pararoos Development Centre, which gives opportunity for groups of kids and adults with cerebral palsy and acquired brain injury, the opportunity to, tra to train and get football development that they otherwise wouldn't have got. The people that play at the Pararoos Development Centre play with respect and gratitude every time they walk out. As a young sports person, you might find your opposition are getting more and more aggressive, pushing, shoving, standing on your toes and saying nasty things. But there is a strategic advantage that not many people are using these days that might just surprise those bullies. Being respectful to your opposition and thankful for the opportunity to play a team sport with your mates. The Pararoos Development Centre provides an equal, fair environment for these players to come together in where they're comfortable being themselves. They use modified rules on a smaller pitch, but every time they lace up their boots, they're busting myths about disability. Players at the Pararoos Development Centre do get white line fever. But theirs comes in the form of a deep thankfulness for the opportunity to play football. And that's an opportunity made possible by good people. One of those being Ed Ferguson, my guest today. Ed Ferguson, welcome to Everyday Greatness. Thanks very much, Barnaby. Great to be here and I'm looking forward to our discussion about yeah, football and I, and I guess how it does relate to so many of those factors that you've just discussed. As am I. You seem like a pretty mild-mannered man, but you still play football. Do you get white line fever yourself when you go out and play? Do you try and crush your opposition? Well, I, th I think there is always a little bit of that in all of us, um, but I think, you know, we do have to be very respectful when we get onto the field. I, I think for anyone in the sports domain, it, there's always that underlying competitiveness. Um we want to win the game. We also want to win our personal battle. We want to have, you know, I want to be able to tackle the, the person running at me or I want to stick all my passes or, or all my headers. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely an element of competitiveness within me um, and I think that goes throughout the team. But I guess it's making sure that um, you don't overstep the mark, isn't it? That, that's the big thing that when you go on the field, you do have to remember that, you know, you're on the field with 21 other, in my case, blokes um, and that you'll want to go to work on Monday. You will probably want to have a chat after the game and, and share, you know, a drink or, or a barbecue. So it's making sure that you can manage those emotions and you don't go over the top. And I think, you know, that is one of the, the big lessons of sport in, in our childhood growing up and, and certainly in adulthood is managing the emotions and it gives us the opportunity to be able to manage um, a lot of those emotions in life and, and, yeah, just the emotional intelligence of when to stick your foot in and when to not really. But I wouldn't say that I, I, I never get white line fever because it has happened in the past, but I'd like to think as I've matured um, it, it's certainly become less and less because there, there are greater things than just winning that game, um, in my opinion, and, and particularly at the level that I'm playing at. <laughs> that belittles the level you're playing at. So why <laughs> did you think it was important to open the Pararoos Development Centre with the NSFA? 
Uh, it actually, to be honest, the inspiration came from a documentary that was made, um, I think it was back in 2017 now, and it was following the Pararoos journey. And so the Pararoos are the Australian national team for athletes with cerebral palsy and acquired brain injury. And it was about that journey over to Argentina. Um, for the world championships and and after watching it um i guess I was, I was just very inspired and motivated to do something and using the position i was in at the time as community football manager at nsfa the northern suburbs football association in sydney i saw an opportunity that well i can coach number one um i have a field i have equipment um and there's also a gap that no one provides opportunities to young players with cerebral palsy or acquired brain injury um, to take part and participate in a development program, and and so that that was all it took really. It was watching the doco and being inspired by it, um, and then taking those first steps. and And it really, I guess, opened my eyes to that I I could do that. Um, I guess, yeah, beforehand, uh, I never really maybe felt that it, it was within me to be able to just set something up like that. However, once we'd done it and once we got a few kids coming along and, and engaged with the actual Paru team and got some of the players from the national team along to help coach within it, uh, it was phenomenal to, I guess, to see the impact that it had. So it all started from from just the documentary, which highlights the, the piece about awareness in our community. We, we need to make sure we share some of these um, heroic things that that some of our players are doing and, and just general people in the community are achieving week in week out. Go on, give it a plug. What was the name of the documentary? Uh, it was it was called um, the Paroos. Um, funnily enough, my brother was heavily involved in it um, as a as a producer, um, but it was just the Paroos. And I think um, it's you know it's, it's on the it's on the website and all money raised from the Paroos goes back to the Paroos because they had a lot of funding issues quite a few years ago, um, whereby the Australian Sports Commission back then and FFA, who are a national body, at the time they pulled funding from the program. And so the documentary was um, out there to create awareness and hopefully to raise some funds to make sure that we can support these athletes as they take on the world, really. Sounds like a, sounds like a bit of a bargain. Support the Paroos financially while watching a good documentary. Oh, How, exactly, and a few tears, and a few tears. I'd imagine so. How do people like those at the Pararoos Development Centre balance being thankful for the opportunities to play football with that white line fever and trying to win at all costs? That's a that's a great question, um, and I guess uh, it comes back to what I was saying before that we all have that competitive streak within us. Um, and some of the players that I've experienced at the Pararoos Development Centre sometimes find it a little bit harder to be able to control those emotions. And so, again, it's a learning experience for them um, because maybe they don't have the same amount of opportunities that an able-bodied um, athlete might have, such as, to be honest, playing from under six to, you know, myself at the moment in all age um, continuously with the right support networks. A lot of the players that we experienced at the Paris Development Centre didn't have that opportunity. Some coaches accepted them in the team. Others turned them away. And so the Paris Development Centre um, allowed them consistent support opportunities to, to play football. And I think it was a learning experience, and, and it still is, of course, for a lot of them to, to be able to control that emotion that when you lose, it doesn't mean you need to cry. Um, when you get tackled, it doesn't mean you need to turn around and kick somebody. Um, and, and these are some of the, you know, they seem so simple. Um, but 
I was afforded the opportunity as an able-bodied athlete um, to play from under six to where I am now without interruption, whereas uh, some of the athletes that we saw um, and the young players that we saw, both men and women, um, this is all boys and girls in most respects, they weren't given those opportunities. So therefore they were never given the opportunity to develop the the emotional control that um, I guess a lot of us just don't even um, think about and take advantage of really. Um, So it certainly does happen and I think it is part of that learning. but the, the smile on the face of those players um, and thanks that you get from not just them but their mums and dads as well it is absolutely priceless and you can really tell that you're making a difference, especially when you see, you know, week one, kid turns around and kicks somebody or, or yeah, um, sometimes punches somebody but, you know, by accident and just not controlling themselves. But by week five, six, seven, they understand what's right, what's wrong and and yeah, essentially, you know, it, it shouldn't be um, only an outlet for aggression. The football and all sports really is an opportunity to to be your best self and to really, you know, push yourself, but also do it around teammates and then people that are like-minded. So that almost answers my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. How do you define success at the NSFA and the Pararoos Development Centre? Is it how many championships you win or how much people are enjoying playing football? But it's it's B. It's it's certainly B. It's how many people are participating in football and um so NSFA our organization, um, I guess our our purpose is to provide inclusive, accessible and enjoyable football opportunities to our community. Um and I, I, that is truly the measure of success. How many players whether, again, they're five-year-olds or they're 45-year-olds, whether they're male, female, um, anything in between, all abilities, all um, athletic types, are they participating? And I guess that's our role as a community sporting organisation is that we want people participating in sport to develop a a physically, mentally and socially active lifestyle and healthy lifestyle. And and I think with the Paris Development Centre, it's certainly taken on that grain as well, Um, that we just want people turning up um, and engaging in football and enjoying football because I guess some background, a lot of these players have been turned away. And again, we, we were afforded, I know you're an AFL boy, but we were afforded the opportunity to play when we were young um, uh, continuously and, and I, I can't speak for you, but I was never turned down from a team. You know, No one ever said, oh, no, there's not enough room in this team or the coach isn't capable to coach you, but these kids have had that. And and that's pretty heartbreaking because I think we all deserve the opportunity to, to participate in something like football. Obviously, I'm biased with football, um, but it is the world game for a reason, and I guess to give them that opportunity, our goal is for them to play. Um, if I had to pick a, a pointy end goal or, or a, a true aspiration, I would love it if one day some of the players end up playing for the actual Paroos. Um, and, and it's been a proud journey so far because some of the girls that used to come and attend the program have now progressed into being very good footballers and maybe the first members of the Paratildas, so a female Paroos team, um, that fingers crossed will be announced over the coming 18 months if we can get the funding. So opportunity number one or goal number one is get people participating in a sport that I love and, and I believe is a, is a great sport for children to be involved in. But goal number two would, would be to create future heroes for the next generation of Paris Development Centre players, um, men and women representing their nation. That sounds tremendous. So community sport these days seems to be getting more and more ruthless. Is simply trying your hardest and being proud of yourself and trying not to be a dickhead enough anymore? 
Um, I think I think it is. It, it comes back down to that individual for sure. Um, being a dickhead shouldn't be on the cards for anyone entering that field, um, and, and it is certainly something that we're we're tackling and, and I guess playing a bit of a tug of war with the NSFA and a lot of other members associations around New South Wales and probably Australia. That we there's always going to be people that are hot headed um, that push themselves or push other people to try and get that negative reaction and, you know, be a bit nasty and aggressive and fierce. And we, we don't need that in the game. Again, we, we all want to wake up on a, on a Sunday and be able to walk. We want to wake up on Monday and go to work um, and, and do whatever we love doing. Um, so I guess we want to try and stamp that out of the game as much as possible. Um, and, I, and I don't believe it has a place in the game, but it is getting highly competitive. Um, even if you look at, if I, if I took a snapshot of the junior age groups or the kids, um, it's highly competitive there. You know, they're training a lot. The parents might be a little bit pushier. Um, there's higher expectations, in my opinion, on a lot of children. Um, and it's, I don't think that's healthy because I think people are losing the purpose of why you play community sport, which, again, is physical, mental, social well-being. Um, so I, I think there definitely is something there. Um that it potentially might be becoming unhealthy. But that's why we need, I guess, the types of programs that the PDC is, um, but also organisations that I'd like to think NSFA are are doing that make sure that we achieve our purpose um, to have that inclusive and accessible and enjoyable um, opportunities for football. Very well said. So let me ask you about you individually. You are the youngest CEO at the NSFA did you need to crush your opposition to land the top job or did you just put your best foot forward and have faith that you were the best candidate? Good question. I've, I've never thought about it um, in, in that way. Uh, I would like to say that um, I put my best foot forward and I've done that throughout my life. Uh, I never expected to be in this seat whatsoever. To be honest, I didn't expect to be working in football. Um I, I started my journey as a, a volunteer coach as part of my Duke of Edinburgh when I was probably 14 years old um, and coached throughout my university days and was lucky enough, I guess, to be given an opportunity to work in football. And since then, I've always tried to take the opportunity because I'm fortunate that I'm doing what I love. Uh, you know, I get to turn up every day and, and enjoy the fact that I'm making a difference in my local community, but also that I'm motivated by it because of, of my deep love for football, which has come from my family, I guess. Um, and, and during my time at NSFA in my last role, which was community football manager, so overseeing kind of player, coach, club development, all of those type of things round into one, one role, um, I like to think that I... I always tried to achieve what was best for the community and uh, I'm obviously very proud of some of the things we've achieved and was very thankful when the board and my member clubs put their faith in me as 28-year-old, I think I was at the time. Um, I was a younger, yeah, I might have been 27, 27 at the time um, to take on the role because it certainly wasn't something that a couple of years prior to that I was expecting um and was even in my in my dreams but now i'm here uh, i'm certainly appreciative and looking back i think it is just having the confidence to do what's right really um and really aligning myself and my personal values with that of the association or the organization that's a very cool story ed so what does it mean to you as the ceo of a huge community sports club 
to be giving so many people the opportunity to play a team sport most weekends? It makes you extremely proud. Um, and to be honest, during this COVID period, it makes you extremely sad um, because, again, I've been afforded this opportunity all my life and I feel so privileged to be able to be paid to do what I love to do, um, playing football but then organising and giving more opportunities of football to more people. And, and it does um, fulfil you quite a lot. And uh, I guess it's probably come from my um childhood background and growing up in, in the family setting that I have and that it's always, you know, you should always be trying to do something that's best for the community. It's, it's not commercially driven. It's not profit driven. It, it's, you know, what can you improve in life um, for yourself but and, and also for others? And I feel like, again, those values of my own have a link to the association and, and has allowed us to achieve a lot because we're very pure in what we're trying to do. It's it's community focused first. Um, and within our strategic plan, we talk about retention. And um, I guess our, our objective is to have the highest retention rate in, the, in Australia. And that's purely to focus on our community and what our needs are within the community and then to try and deliver that. And again, that's, that's also... I guess, self-fulfilling that, you know, I'm, I can be proud that more people are playing football, but also be proud that more people are getting the benefits of community sport. Very nice, very nice. Can you think of any individual players at the Pararoos Development Centre who were struck with excitement when they realised they could do something all of a sudden that they couldn't do when they first turned up? Oh, yeah, there there are many. And to be honest, it's not just the players, it's the mums and dads. Watching, seeing some of their smiles was amazing. Um, again, you talk about, you know, some of these kids went through the heartbreak of, of being told they couldn't play in their team. And, and then they were given this opportunity and given proper coaching and, you know, inspiration from the Paroos players from the national team coming down and supporting them was just phenomenal. So there's a few players I have in mind. I won't name their names because they're all quite young. Um, but two boys stand out as being brilliant footballers that were probably just very low on confidence. Um, and you've heard it here first, but I reckon they'll um, represent the national team one day. Um, I'm not sure how you can hold me to that one. I don't say their name, but but if, if you trust my word, um, then uh, I believe that they'd be brilliant candidates in the future. And then for, uh, there's one female um, player who was – quite a bit older. Um, she was in her early 20s and, and, again, was for many years and not been given the opportunity to participate in football. Um, and she took these programs by the horns and loved it, ran with it, developed herself, um, and it just gave her so much enjoyment. And it, and it wasn't always just the skill development that gave her the satisfaction and enjoyment. It was being around like-abled players um, and being in an environment that was supportive. And, again, I think that just highlights, you know, that's the reason why I'm in the game um, and I hope that's a, that's the reason why so many volunteers, um, I guess, are involved in community sport throughout Australia. I'll definitely be holding you those predictions. I'll find a way of finding out who you're talking about. With such huge competition to attract players to community sport, does that ruthless competitive, competitive nature come into play as an organisation? Does the NSFA go out and try and poach players from other sports or do you just do you guys just focus on your game plan and have faith the result will take care of itself? Um, uh, we, we definitely have faith in ourselves. Um, however, uh, there has been moments in the past speaking to football as a whole that there's been moments where I guess 
I've, I've heard of strategies where it's gone, okay, let's go and take players from X sport. Um, but I don't think that's the right way of looking. And as I mentioned before, I focus on retention or, or internal. It's, a, it's on our membership, what we can do to better serve them. And so if we can deliver on that objective to deliver exactly what our community needs, and obviously there's lots of variations because we've got over 18,000 players, um, we will start having the confidence that we can deliver and that in turn will attract more people because, again, we're, we're servicing the community. Um, I, I do know that it is pretty ruthless out there that there's only a certain amount of players uh, or participants in the sport and everyone's essentially vying for the same. But I think for any sporting organisation, they need to understand the purpose first and what their membership wants to get out of community sport. Um, and hopefully try and deliver that. I think it would be wrong to have, I guess, the competitive mindset of just trying to steal from one sport without looking after your own. And internally we, we use the analogy of a bathtub. And if you only focus on attracting new players, i.e. stealing them from, let's say, rugby or AFL, just to grind your gears a bit, <laughs> if we were to just steal them from AFL, we'd be turning on the tap of a bathtub. But if we don't focus on our players then they're going to, the, those players, the water, is continue going to continue to leak out of the plug plug hole. Um, and so by us as NSFA focusing on retention, we're plugging the plug hole. So we're keeping the water in the bathtub. And as we retain the water or our players, we're attracting more as well because people go, oh, you know, Ed's playing. I might go and join him for a season. Or, you know, um, for example, our women's over 35 league is, grown phenomenally over the last couple of years and, and that's great i mean more mums potentially you know get involved in football and that's great because then it attracts more mums so I, I certainly think we have the approach of focus on yourself and be confident in what you deliver and if you can meet that objective then you will grow and you know you will provide a great experience to to your membership it's incredibly well said ed ferguson the Northern Suburbs Football Association seems to be in very safe hands right now with you at the helm. Thank you so much for joining us on Everyday Greatness. No worries whatsoever. It's um, So far it's been a great journey. Um, a great foundation has been set um, for me, I guess, before from my board and, and previous CEOs. Um, and also, to be honest, a lot of credit does have to go out to our club volunteers. And I know you know this being from a grassroots space in sport, but um uh, what I do is is very minute compared to the countless hours that our volunteers put on on the ground uh, and invest on the ground. So for me, um, it's a huge shout out to them really and to continue doing what we're doing um, because we're all, I guess, aligned in the values and the purpose of, of spreading the football message to the world as much as possible. But thank you very much for having me. I, I hope I've provided some interesting insight into, I guess, how football can be a vehicle for really positive kind of social change and also to create a great environment for our community to be involved in. You certainly have. Thanks again, Ed. Gus Warland knows firsthand what the worst case scenario of a mental health struggle can be. When he was playing golf before a friend's wedding in England, another friend in Australia gave him a call and told him Angus is dead. Gus's mate had taken his own life. It took a long time for Gus to understand the situation, but Gus used his grief and confusion to help Australian men get help before that worst-case scenario becomes a realistic option. Gus started Gotcha for Life, 
which aims to prevent poor mental health in Australian men. Gotcha for Life doesn't have a string of inspiring celebrities yelling at people, telling them not to give up. The aim of Gotcha for Life is to keep things simple. Gotcha for Life creates places that build open and honest relationships where people are comfortable expressing themselves. Mental health struggles are very real and the consequences can be dire. But Gus Warland and Gotcha for Life are offering real and simple solutions. They're just getting people together. The tough Aussie bloke that can deal with any drama on his own and doesn't need a hand from anyone is a thing of the past. Men are opening up, being vulnerable and sharing their struggles. Basically, they're not being dickheads and Gus Warland is helping them do it. Gus Warland joins me now on Everyday Greatness. Gus, welcome and thank you for joining me. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So if Gotcha for Life is all about mates helping mates, the reason you're on this show today reflects that perfectly. Tell me why you're here on Everyday Greatness. Uh, Look, for me, I suppose my life turned around big time um, in 2015, 2016. I decided to talk openly for the first time on my radio show or this radio show that I was on around something that made me feel very vulnerable, a friend of mine, like you just said, that had taken his own life. And for me, it was a, you know, a moment for that radio show where we became really vulnerable but really open and honest and we built a safe environment for our listeners and hosts to talk about stuff that really mattered. And uh, we had such amazing feedback. It changed that radio show forever. And off the back of that, I did the Man Up program on the ABC and that really challenged masculinity and I went on a journey while my friend Angus had taken his own life and about 15 days into into filming I decided that this wasn't just going to be a job, it was going to be something I was going to do for the rest of my life. So that's what I decided to do and um, Gotcha for Life started off the back of Man Up and we've been going now about four years and, you know, we're really focused on the preventive side of suicide. Um, You would know as well as anyone the numbers are horrific around suicide and around suicide attempts in Australia, so we have to do something different. So zero suicides is the aim and we will only do that through education and we'll only do that by changing what the stereotypical Australian male and female are all about. So um, it's about taking away the white coat. It's about normalising the fact that we go through tough stuff and we need people that we can talk to about it. So that's really what Gotcha for Life is about and I'm very proud to say that I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to that as you should be proud. The small things in life often seem too small to be making any difference, especially to a person's mental health. Why does Gotcha for Life promote the small things that sound like they're too simple, just turning up and just being there? Yeah, it's honestly mental health and anything around that wellness, you know, in inverted commas area, it just is too complicated and it makes people, the ordinary Aussie bloke initially for me, just switch off. You go well. That's not me. That's someone else. So you don't even you don't even um, get yourself involved in it. But if you talk about mental health, like mental fitness, and if you talk mental fitness, like physical fitness, it means that we're working on stuff all the time. We can get better. We've got a mental fitness level. We've got a physical fitness level. So let's talk about it like that. And if you are a four or five out of ten for your physical fitness, well, there's a whole lot of really confident, positive discussions that you can have to get yourself up to a seven or eight. 
you know, in terms of just stop drinking so much, stop smoking, don't eat so much junk food, go and see this personal trainer, get this food delivered, whatever it might be. There's some really good conversations and positive ones around getting your physical fitness up to scratch. Well, we should be doing exactly the same with our with our mental fitness. And that's why I talk about mental fitness because it allows people to realise that we're on some sort of scale and we can get better. And here's some tips and tricks to get better. Um, as soon as you make it more too complicated, as soon as you make it for someone thinking, well, that's not me, then you've lost them forever. So we need to just normalise the conversation. We need to humanise the conversation. And the more you do that, then the more people will buy in. The more people will buy in, then the more people will educate themselves on just being better. And if they're being better, then we're more likely to find that person to share stuff with. And if we do that, then we won't be worrying alone because worrying alone is the worst thing you can do. And I truly believe that death of loneliness is suicide. So we can't have people worrying alone and we can't take for granted relationships that we think are okay. Oh, she'll be right, mate. Oh, look, I'm sure that's okay. That stuff's a way of the past. We're not doing it anymore. We're putting a line in the sand and saying, you know what, I'm simplifying my life. I'm going to look after my village, look after the people that I absolutely love and adore, and I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to leave with vulnerability to make sure that they know that they come and see, they can come and see me about anything because you, I, I can't imagine for the life of us that anyone really wants anyone that they love and adore to be worrying alone. So we need to build an environment and a culture that allows people to talk openly about things outside of banter. You know, banter is easy. We're, we're in control with that, but it's the important conversations we need to make more normal. Very true, very true. So with Gotcha for Life, Man Up on the ABC and all this talk about mental health and suicide, you must have witnessed a lot of dark clouds in your time. How are you and how do you get through it all? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Certainly initially for me I was living in a bubble and my life was actually pretty cruisy until until Angus took his own life. And and then to be honest with you, Barnaby, I, I actually I sat on it for ages myself. Um, and it wasn't until I was brave enough to talk about it on the grill team on Triple M Sydney Brecky Radio one day and I went, righto, I'm going for it. And it was just liberating and I just felt so good. And then everyone else that really loved Angus said, well, I want to help you as well and let's go and fundraise and what else can we do? And it just opened up this beautiful conversation. So um, I've been really good ever since, but, of course, I do emotional work. I speak to a lot of people. Uh, I'm a bit of a beacon for people um, when they want to talk about suicidal thoughts or being mentally unfit. So, you know, I, I certainly put myself out there, but um, I, I love it. And I have someone that I talk to who's an incredible person, a lady that I can talk to about anything. And I've got a really supportive wife and my kids understand what I'm doing. And, you know, that a bit of tough love every now and again from them saying, come on, dad, you know, give a bit of love to us. You know, you you're giving it to everyone else. We need you here. We need you present. Um, you know, that can be a bit of a smack across the chops every now and again to get me going. But I think at, at the end of the day, um, you know, as long as I'm open and honest with the people that I love, my village, my gotcha for life mates, you know, they'll, they'll always be able to help me. I had a huge week last week with Are You OK Week. I did 31 presentations and some of those were over an hour. You know, and as you know, straight to this laptop computer, you know, it's you're not getting the energy out of a crowd like I'd normally would. So um, I had to take, you know, the weekend after my radio show off and Monday off this week just to give me a chance to, um, you know, get my, get my energy back again. Very true. 
People who do know you say you're a larger-than-life bloke with a heart bigger than Farlap. Do you have something extra that the rest of us don't that helps you keep you happy and mentally fit? Oh, look, there's no doubt that I've always sort of worn my heart on my sleeve and that's hurt me at times as well. Um, but, a lot, you know, I am a bit of a different cat, but I don't think I have anything that other people don't. I'm just very, very lucky that I grew up in a in a family that, you know, was a bit disjointed, to be fair. My dad had left the family home when I was quite young, but my mum was a wonderful mother to me and I had a really good bunch of mates and their fathers took on the role of a bit of a father figure um, to me. So I was very lucky to have some good role models around me, but, you know, I've been very lucky with the education and the people around me that have allowed me to to be the person I am. I've had nothing beaten out of me in inverted commas. A lot of people talk about that now with their fathers or or uncles where they were looked upon as, you know, being weaker or softer because they showed some emotion. That was always something that I was allowed to to just keep doing. So um, I was, I suppose, waiting um, for something in my life to happen to allow me to, to do what I'm doing now. And, you know, I wish that I didn't have to lose Angus, but I'm, you know, in a way I'm, I'm now doing exactly what I should be doing because, you know, zero suicides is the is the aim. We lose seven blokes a day, as you know, three ladies every day and 65,000 attempts a year. That's one every 28 seconds where the ambulance is phoned in this country for someone who's, you know, attempted to take their own life. So we've got the awareness, but we haven't got enough action. So that's where I come in. And, um, you know, I'm very pleased to join a whole lot of really other good people doing great work um, to keep this topic alive and to give people as much education as possible to to make sure they have relationships that that are a bit deeper than perhaps they were in the past. Well, Australia is a very lucky country to have you doing what you're doing. Suicide is a very heavy topic and it feels like you need huge life-changing strategies if you're considering it. But is the accumulation of small goodness enough to help people get off that path? I definitely think that's a really good starting point. Not worrying alone is the absolute key. So if you worry alone, then you are normally coming up with some pretty ordinary decisions if you're just thinking about it yourself. And I'm sure everyone listening to your podcast now would go, oh, yeah, I've made some errors in judgment where I've just tried to do things by myself. It doesn't mean you have to burst into tears every five minutes or have a deep and meaningful conversation all the time or even tell all your mates about how you're feeling, but just find one of those mates and and turn them into a gotcha for life, mate. And that's the key. That one person that you can be a little bit deeper with is absolutely key. Um, for me, that starts with a awkward conversation. It starts with being a bit vulnerable. It starts with us being a little bit out of control, which is not where we like to be. So that's why I talk about conversations of gravity outside of conversations of banter. You can have them every now and again. You don't need to have them all the time, but you need to have the emotional muscle and the mental fitness to have them when you need to. And also you need to have that aura about you that allows your friends to um, have, for you to have them, what's the right word, for you to be able to um, have an aura about you where people can come and see you and go, hey, I need to talk to you about something that is something a little bit different to what we normally talk about. So it goes both ways. You need to be a good listener. We need to learn to be good listeners as men in particular. Um, but, yeah, absolutely, a little bit of kindness can just change things so much for people. Um, people are lonely and people are disconnected at the moment. People don't have as much connection as they want, so we need 
to be kind to people and we need to look after our village of people that we love so we just keep them thinking a bit more positively than they would if they were by themselves. What are some of the most encouraging stories that Gotcha for Life has where people thought they had no hope but when they turned to Gotcha for Life, they turned their lives around simply by adding some small goodness back into the world? We had this most magnificent situation where, to look at me, you wouldn't realise I'm a marathon runner, but I run a marathon. I've run about seven or eight half marathons. And I was doing a half marathon down in Canberra about a year or so after I had finished the Man Up program. And what they had done at the ABC is they kept replaying it. And it's still on ABC iView, so people were picking up on it all the time. And I ran, I was actually sort of jogging, <laughs> And this other bloke came the other way. So he'd already gone out past the point to turn around and was coming back the other way. And as he was running past me, he said, hey, Gus, you saved my life. And I'm like, what? And I wasn't quite sure what he what he meant and certainly didn't know how I had done that. And I'm like, well, I'll never see him again. And I finished the, the, the half marathon and I was getting a banana and sort of walking back to my car. And he came over to me and said, mate, I've been waiting for you. And I said, oh, sorry that it took so long. And he's like, no, 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 I just wanted to tell you. And I'll tell you this story. He goes, I went to, oh. he said, I went to my mum and dad's place to say goodbye, but they didn't know I was saying goodbye because I was going to kill myself this night. And he said, it was the night that your Man Up program was on. And he said, I'd never watched the ABC, but my mum and dad, when I dropped in, your show started. They didn't know that I'd come to say goodbye, but I was. I was going to take my life that night. And he said, I just sat and watched the program with them and mum made us a cup of tea and we had a bicky and he said it was just a lovely, lovely night. And he said, I started listening to what you are saying on the Man Up program and it got me thinking that perhaps, you know, I, I, I maybe shouldn't tonight. Maybe I should just investigate a little bit more about this Man Up program. And at the end it said, well, next week on Man Up, and he goes, well, I'm going to come back and watch it again with mum and dad. And he did that the second week. And then he did that the third week. And by the end of the third week, the rope that he had bought from Bunnings, he took back. And he is now living a full life. He got back into running again, which is something that he loved. But just because he was in such a dark place, he had forgotten really that this was one of the things that made him happy. And he said, you saved my life that night when your show came on. It bonded me with mum and dad. I would never have seen it if I hadn't gone and seen mum and dad because I don't watch the ABC. And he said, I'm still alive today, so that's why I shouted out, you, you, you saved my life. So that was a pretty amazing moment. And it, when you're working in suicide prevention, you don't realise sometimes the people that you help unless they actually come and say that or they get hold of you in on your socials or your website and say thank you um, because... The numbers are still the numbers, the seven and three and the 65,000. You know, those numbers are happening and it makes you realise perhaps what would the numbers be if you weren't out there doing what you're you're meant to be doing. So that was a beautiful story, Barnaby, that I like to share and um, I'm still in contact with that guy now and, you know, he doesn't necessarily want me to say his name but um, he certainly loves the fact that, you know, I saved him and um, that makes me feel good that I did something um, you know, so important. That is a really cool story. That must fill you with immense pride when you have quiet moments or look in front of the mirror. How do you feel when you hear when you think about that story in your own little times? 
I must have said that story a thousand times, Barnaby, and I still choke up, as you saw or heard probably in my voice at the start of the of the of, of me telling it. But you know, I've got a few stories like that. I had a, I had a truckie that I. I'm just one of those guys, Barnaby, that if I'm in a lift, I'll start talking to you. If I'm at a at a, at a, at a crossing across the road and there's someone there, I'll say good day. Um, and there was this guy one day that was in a truck and he had a bluey dog that was in the passenger seat, obviously next to where I am. And I had my window down and I was like, he's a good boy, he's a good boy to this dog. And the bloke leaned over, he said, I can't effing believe it. Gus Wallen, I said, g'day, mate, how are you going? He's, and he just started burst. he just burst into tears. And I said, mate, pull over the next street on the left and I'll pull in with you. So I let him come across me. He went into the street and we chatted for about 45 minutes just on the side of the road. And he just was at breaking point. Um, the last possible straw with his boss having a go at him that morning, which normally wouldn't have affected him, but a lot of other stuff had happened as well. Now, he wasn't suicidal, but he was certainly going to go down that path. And he just said, I can't believe you stopped. I can't believe you're walking the walk because I hear you talk about it on Triple M, but I can't believe it. And I've seen him a few other times, this bloke, and he still shakes his head and he tells people the story. And I think if you make yourself available and you're walking the walk as much as talking the talk, then you will come across situations where people will just be really open and honest with you. You know, they'll show that real human side with you. And that's that's where I want people to be because that means that you're telling a truth. And if you're telling the truth, then it'll allow you to see that, hey, it's not quite as bad normally as you think it's going to be. And also, Barnaby, the other thing is you don't realise when you speak out loud how many other people are going through a similar thing. Um, you think you're the only one and then you talk about it and people go, oh, yeah, same here. Oh, yeah, I had a problem with that. Oh, this is what I did. And you just get advice from people. You get information. You get clarity that you're not the only one that's bumbling away, you know, sometimes with your really struggling to get through stuff, you realise that everyone goes through it and that actually makes it easier to go, you know what, if they've got through it, so can I. But you'll never know if you keep it all to yourself. Very true. What can a person do if they have a mate who they think is getting a little bit down and having some dark thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one because blokes in particular are really good at masking it. We put the mask on and we carry on as if nothing's a problem and then we just make a really, really poor decision uh, that's permanent based on a temporary situation. So there's two ways of looking at it, Barnaby. Firstly, for me, is having someone in your group that's on the front foot that doesn't mind leading with some vulnerability and opens up a safe space for people to talk. That's a really cool way of doing it because that way you're not looking for signs from your mates. You're actually getting on the front foot yourself and telling them that, hey, it's a bit of a tough situation. And that normalises that conversation, so that's really good. And then secondly... If someone's really obviously struggling, i.e., you know, saying no to everything, uh, changed character or personality, they're not quite the person that you thought that they are, then absolutely nothing wrong with you saying, hey, buddy, is everything okay? You know, and not accepting, oh, shit, yeah, I'm fine, no worries. Because I'm fine, no worries, it's just the biggest lie that an Australian male in particular can ever say. We're just so full of shit. We just, that's why Are You OK Day is so much better now because we're asking not just the first question, but the second and third question, we're actually giving people information on how to have a proper conversation. So, you know, don't accept fine. Don't accept people just saying, oh, I'm sweet, don't worry about it. 
You know, that's not good enough anymore. We know information. We're better at it. So get yourself in a vulnerable, uncomfortable conversation and have that conversation and build some emotional muscle and mental fitness. And that way you'll build an environment and a culture amongst your friends and family that it's okay to be um, vulnerable and it's okay not to be okay. Any, Any type of sentence you want to put to that, but it just means that you feel comfortable being yourself and you don't have to bullshit everyone all the time and make out that everything's okay when it's not. So, you know, lead the way by being vulnerable. It's a very different way of thinking for a lot of Australian men. What can that it, same it, it person... Is, it, is, it is, but you know what? What's got us here is the old-fashioned stereotype of she'll be right and, oh, I don't want to go there and I don't want to be the bloke that drags the group down and I don't want to be that person that, you know, that ends up sounding like a policeman, well, that's BS. You know, it's that old-fashioned way has led us to seven blokes a day every day taking their own life and the number one way to die if you're a young Australian male. So, you know, I say to that, get uncomfortable. You know, have an uncomfortable conversation now or you'll end up having a, a eulogy to write. And I'd, I'd prefer to know what I'd want to do. Very true, very true. So what can that same person who wasn't sure how to help their mate who was struggling, what can they do if it seems like their help isn't doing a thing? Yeah, that's that's the other thing is to realise you don't have to be the fixer. You don't have to be the person that comes up with all the answers. You don't have to be that one-man band that gets some information from their mate and comes up with all the answers. No way. What you do then is you become a part of their village, you become a part of their tribe, a part of their team, and you go, you know what, we're in this together. So I'm going to go to the doctors with you. I'm going to work on a mental health plan with you. I'm going to help you with whatever you need to to do, and I'm going to protect you and look after you. And that's what it's all about is actually becoming someone that builds a village around them that helps them. Don't be the person that has that conversation and then eventually goes, you know what, I don't have the answers. How are you expected to have the answers? You're not a medical professional, and even medical professionals struggle because every situation is slightly different. So just be part of the tribe, be part of the of, of the thing that might be able to help. That's the key. And build a few more people around you with a professional and a and a counsellor and a doctor and some medicos, whatever it might be, and then you might invite one or two of your other mates involved in as well, and then you might find out that they need help as well. So you build this really lovely culture of a safe village that all your mates can can tip into whenever you want to. You know, life is hard. Life is ups and downs. You can't expect to have it everything your own way and everything cruisy all the time. We are going up and down like a bride's nighty. So let's 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 um, understand that and then build the village around to help you with it. You must it must get a bit heavy being seen as the bloke with all the answers for every Tom, Dick, and Harry. What are some? Let's. Talk, I want to ask you some questions about Gus Warren, the man. What are some of the happiest moments in your your own life? Uh, always, but before children and before my wife, I just had the best childhood, or the best street. Like the street was full of kids and we were either in summer in each other's pools or we were we were playing footy in winter or cricket or, you know, we just were always at someone's house and it was always an open door policy. You know, it was, it was <laughs> we'd always eat afternoon tea somewhere or get double afternoon tea because we went one house to the other. So I was just so lucky there and I've still got a couple of really good mates from that street um, that I see regularly that I absolutely love. So that was good. And then, like I said, my mum was great. Once I had a better relationship with dad, 
once I was a bit older and so forth, then I realised how brave he was as a man and why he made certain choices. So I learnt a lot from him and his mum and dad are still with me, which is fantastic. I've got a brother that's very different to me, but he's also I learned a lot from him. So I had a good solid base, you know, of, of goodness around me that allowed me to be the guy that I am today. And a lot of people say that I haven't changed in, you know, 40 years or 45 years. I'm 53 in December. So that, that that gave me a really good base to be happy and sometimes that meant I was in a bubble which which meant that I didn't see a lot of stuff that was bad. I just was living in la-la land, which is not a bad place to be. I think kids sometimes these days don't have enough time to be kids themselves. They're thrown into stuff a bit too soon. So, And then I went to England and travelled and met my now wife of nearly 30 years and and then we had three beautiful children that are 18, 20 and 21 and I've kept a lot of my old mates from school Um I probably got 15 really close mates and 10 of those are from school and another couple from my street. So very, very lucky. And I haven't always been happy or lucky in in work, but I was eventually, you know, found a really good spot at Toshiba where I worked for about 10 years. And then I was really lucky, Barnaby, to, you know, to obviously have Hugh Jackman as my best friend since kindy. And I had a TV idea and he thought it was good and he took it to Foxtel and that allowed me to start my media career. And once I got into the TV shows, I was very lucky to, you know, have someone listen to me one day and watch me one day and say, hey, you could be good at radio. And that gave me that chance. And I had 10 years on Brecky Radio. Not all of that was fun. Uh, most of it was, though, a lot of pressure, a lot of 3.30 alarms, which isn't a lot of fun. But um, that gave me the opportunity to do Man Up, which gave me the opportunity to Gotcha for Life. And you know, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life now. So there was a few ups and downs in there for sure, and I've certainly learned a lot from those. But as a general rule, I've been very lucky. Hugh Jackman's a pretty solid best friend. How important have all of your mates been to you in your life? Yeah, I mean, extremely important. And, you know, Jacko is doing a movie in in London at the moment and, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to him every day or FaceTiming or we send each other a a note of some description and we've become closer in the last five years than we ever were, but we were still best men at each other's wedding and godfather to our firstborn and so forth. So, but our friendship's gone to a much deeper level because um, we've been really open and honest with each other, you know, and that's the key, you know, and that's why he loves Gotcha for Life so much and he supports us so much. He's on my board and he does stuff for us because he realises that he wants everyone to have what we've got you know, and that's just a really solid relationship where you don't have to be lovey-dovey all the time. You can call your mate out if you don't think it's the right thing to do, but also you're there for each other, you know, and it's just stronger and deeper than a normal friendship. But on top of Jacko, you know, I've got, like I said, another 10 or 15 that I really, really can totally trust and I feel very safe being around, and that's the key for blokes. We need to feel safe. We need to trust that what we're saying is staying where it's staying and, um you know, I'm very lucky that I've got those blokes and that's why I called it Gotcha for Life because I feel that I've got those people that you can have those conversations with warts and all knowing that, um, you know, they've got your back and um, the half the battle is what you, a question you asked me earlier is my mates trying to help me when they know that I'm trying to help other people. They want to be there for me and sometimes it's just listening, sometimes it's me just listening to them. It doesn't have to be this back and forth all the time. Um and coming up with solutions. It can just simply be um, listening and being there for each other and just having that connection. 
please tell Jacko I said g'day when you speak to him next. I will. I will. So let me ask you about Gotcha for Life practically. How can people practically help their mates through Gotcha for Life? Well, for us, it's all about people fundraising. That's the key. And I know that things are tough at the moment. A lot of people are going through tough times. But to do an event or putting an event, a community event on for us is how we raise funds. And fundraising is the key because the more money I raise, the more facilitators that I can employ. The more facilitators that I employ means more people get the workshops that we provide funding for. So that's the absolute key at the end of the day, Barnaby. But there's also some good people out there that might not be able to help financially, but they might be able to help with the skill set. So if you go to gotchaforlife.org and, and say that you want to help, then that'll come straight through to the team. And, you know, we've we've picked up heaps of people that, you know, now doing accountancy for us or law stuff for us because they've got, you know, 10 or 15 hours a month they can give, but they can't give anything financially. Well, you know, that to us is as good as financial help because it means that we haven't had to pay someone to do it. So, yeah, really, really keen for anyone who's like-minded who likes the simple philosophy that we have to help with what I think is going to be the biggest issue moving forward out of COVID, which is our own mental fitness. Well, Gus Warland, you're an incredible human being and I'm incredibly grateful for your time today. Thank you for joining us on Everyday Greatness. Barnaby, it's absolutely my my pleasure and thank you for doing for what you're doing and the fact that you're doing this podcast and getting it out there. And uh, if anyone out there needs any more information, you know where to get me. But I enjoyed talking to you, mate. Take care. Thanks, Gus. And thanks, Ed. Thank you all for listening. And thank you to the ARA Group for being our major sponsor for the fourth year in a row. Thanks to Cherry Civil for being our episode sponsor. And thanks to Look Studio Australia for recording and doing all the technical work on this episode. And I hope that when you put your device down in a little while, you lift your head up, push your shoulders back, and walk down the street proud of being an everyday Joe Bag of Donuts. I hope you can join us next episode where I'll be speaking to two great parents setting good examples, Pauline Kwong and Andrew Trelaw. I'll be talking to them about how there is no typical family. If you'd like to find out more about that episode, today's episode, or Everyday Greatness, go to our website or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or LinkedIn. Thanks again.